Amen. So we gather, Christians have gathered, followers of Jesus have gathered for millennia. Not because they have anything better to do. Not because they can't sleep in or there's no good brunch options. Followers of Jesus have gathered for millennia to remind themselves and declare that Jesus is Lord over not only our lives, but our, our city, our nation, and our world. That's why we do this. And the vision we have as a church is that we want to be a community that strives to recognize, all right, and participate in the kingdom of God. That's like our desire. We want to, we want to recognize where the kingdom is moving, participate in it, and be it the kind of people that live inviting lives of following Jesus, inviting lives of discipleship. And here's what that means. That means that many times when we gather and we approach Scripture, sometimes there's hard things to say, things that are unpopular, things that, uh, that force us to, to wrestle. And today is no different. So this idea walking through this last fall, being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did, those are things that uh, cause tension in our lives. Now, the chances are you could show up at a church um, and hear messages about surrendering your life, surrendering to the kingdom of Jesus. You could also show up at churches, unfortunately, that talk about growing your kingdom. And um, there's two different messages that you could hear depending on where you go, what you do. The last five weeks, we've been in a series called uh, Citizens and Exiles. We've been walking through the book of Daniel, and we've been noticing um, that the people of Israel are in exile, and yet they're living in this way that is contrary to the way they're living. And, and and they're, they're sojourners and they're exiles and at the same time they're citizens of heaven. And we've talked about this third way to live. Instead of separating from culture or instead of just totally blending in and doing the same thing that culture does, that we're actually called to be something called a creative minority. And a creative minority is a group of people, a small group of people that uh, are, are after the heart of God and at the same time can influence the community around them. In creative ways. And so last week, if you missed last week, uh, our, our dear friend Gabe Nip was here um, from uh, the Springs, and um, you got to go online and hear it. Um, he did a phenomenal job of unpacking uh, Daniel chapter 2. But the reminder for us is that we actually now live in a post-Christian world, meaning um, in the U.S. right now, we're in a brand new cultural moment. It's been coming on for years uh, in a post-Christian society doesn't mean there's no more Christians. It just means that it's not the norm anymore. It means that um, there's lots of followers of Jesus and the church is still growing, but um, that secularization of the Western culture is near complete, meaning it's been happening for decades in the academic community, but ultimately now at a popular level, it's easier to write off God, write God out of your mind, 
and live a full-on secular life. And so we're asking new questions, new questions about what does it look like to live out the call of Jesus now, here, not 20 years ago, 30 years ago. There's this great letter in 120, 130 AD from a follower of Jesus and, uh, to an academic elite of the time in the Roman world. And we think this academic elite was a tutor of Marcus Aurelius. And he wrote this. It's kind of a long quote, but hang with me. He says, For Christians are not distinguished from the rest of humanity by country or by speech or by dress. For they do not dwell in cities of their own or use different language or practice a peculiar life. But while they dwell in Greek or barbarian cities according, to, according as each person's lot has been cast and following the customs of the land in clothing and food and other conditions of daily life, yet the condition of citizenship, check this out, which they exhibit is wonderful and admittedly strange. They live in countries, uh, they live in countries of their own but simply as sojourners. They share the life of citizens. They endure the lot of foreigners. Every foreign land is to them a homeland, and every homeland a foreign land. They spend their existence upon the earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. This is one of the early writings we get in the, this, this piece, this picture of what it looked like to be the early church. And what sets us apart as followers of Jesus is not your country or your language or your fashion or your dress or your diet. What sets you apart is your way of life. What sets you apart is, is, is how, you've, how you view the world and how you live. And this is where it creates tension, right? Because on the one hand, we're citizens of the United States. And on the other hand, we're sojourners. We're, we're resident aliens here. This isn't our home, right? And so this idea of that my faith and my allegiance is to Jesus in the kingdom of God if I follow Jesus. That's my faith and my allegiance. And that's what Daniel chapter 3 is all about. And so we're going to dive into Jan Daniel chapter 3. And uh, it's going to be fun. You ready? You guys awake out there? It's Super Bowl Sunday. Not that you care. I mean, is anybody really rooting for the Patriots in here? I just need to know. All right, get out. Just kidding. I guess. Um, here we go. Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high, 6 cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then command, uh, summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, and magistrates, and all other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image that he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image, of king, uh, of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, what is a zither? What does it sound like? N never mind. A lyre, a harp. I was just trying to get you guys. What? Oh, okay. 
Here it is. A lyre, a harp, a pipe, and all kinds of mu music. Here's what you do. You must fall down and worship the image of, of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, the flute, that peppy zither, the lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations of the peoples of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Okay, so Nebuchadnezzar, most powerful man in the world at the moment, at this moment in time. He is a global military powerhouse. He is the head of the biggest, most powerful nation in the world. He sets up a statue. Is it a statue of himself? No. Sorry. I shouldn't have totally baited you guys with that one. It's not. It's not a statue, actually, of any of the gods of Babylon. Scholars believe that this is an image of Babylon itself. It's an image of the power and the might and the beauty and the strength and the, just the enormous wealth of Babylon. And they were to bow down to this image as the greatest nation on earth. The who's who of everybody who's important is there. I mean, you got really important people like satraps and prefects, magistrates and treasurers and all these people there. The who's who of everybody is there. Kind of like the Super Bowl, right? Oh, it's Super Bowl Sunday. I mean, really important people are going to be there. I mean, who's the halftime show? Yeah. Who? Room five, and they're going to have like all these other famous people just pop out, and everybody's going to go, ah. So there's going to be all these really important people there, political people, like celebrities, all these people there. And they, they bow down. It says they bow down and they worship this statue. They worship an image of Babylon. Listen to this, verse 8. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced to the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, and who are the Jews, right? Daniel and his friends, right? They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. Suck-ups. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. So it's really interesting here. It's really clear that there, there's a separation between the, the, the images of the gods of Babylon and the one that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Have you noticed that? So Nebuchadnezzar is not asking the people to worship different gods or a special god or anything like that. He's got all these different gods you can worship. What the guys are saying here is that there's different groups. There's the worship of these gods, and then there's this image that 
Nebuchadnezzar is set up. He's actually, they're really frustrated. It sounds like there's some infighting. They're kind of jealous of the fact that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are above, above some certain things. They think it's kind of lame, and they're actually stirring the pot. There's actually some jealousy here, some backdoor work going on. And so, so you can imagine, in a sea of people, okay, in a sea of people, really important people, these three Jewish men are not going to bow down. And they're quiet about it. They're not blowing horns. They're not marching down the street. There's no never nebs hashtag. There's no, you know what I mean? There's no, there's none of that stuff. There's, there, and, and we realize, remember, Daniel's not here. Daniel's actually not here at all. He's at the royal court. So let's pick it up in verse 13. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? See how he even separates them. Now when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, man, the zither, Lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music. If you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Very, talk about megalomaniac, right? What God? I am more powerful than your God. You can't, your God can't stop me from throwing you into the furnace. And so notice the anger and the hostility and the boasting from a political leader. Like, I don't know that we notice that from our political leaders anymore. It's a good thing we've, not, like, none of our leaders are like that. Oh, wait, all of them are. Um, Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But if, even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image you have set up. Even they split it up. They're just like, hey, here's the deal. Even if you do this, even if our God doesn't show up and rescue us, we're still not going to do this. I love it. There's no yelling, no screaming, no arguing. They basically say, do your worst, but we will not give allegiance to anything else. So remember, this is not the 21st century. This is 6th century ancient Near East culture where religion, politics, power, spirituality is all t twisted together. It's all intermingled. And these guys are not loud and disrespectful and snarky. Their refusal to participate was deeply, it was a deeply subversive act and a threat to the status quo around them. You've got all these really important people there. 
Verse 19, then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. Remember, we learned earlier that God actually uh, gave them favor with the king, right? So his attitude with them changes. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. That's a literary, literary way of saying extra hot. And commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the furnace. These men wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, he loves lists, and other clothes were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace." Verse 24, then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that was tied up and thrown into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. Uh, I'm reading too fast. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Now, who is that fourth, fourth person? The church answer is? Okay, but we don't know that. Aramaic means a spiritual being. We, we don't know if it was Jesus. It doesn't matter. Actually, a couple paragraphs later, it says it was an angel, but we don't know. <laughs> okay? But that's not the point. The point is, is that God was with them in the middle of the fire. That's the point. That God was with them in the middle of the fire. Verse 26, Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, prefects, governors, royal advisors crowded around them. I don't know what happened to the treasurers. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were scorched. There were, sorry, their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Listen, when I barbecue out back, there's a good chance I'm losing arm hair, and, and there's a real good chance I'm coming and smelling like the barbecue. These guys come out and nothing, right? Then Nebuchadnezzar said, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. The three, the three men trusted God and defied the king's commands and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve and worship anything except their own God. So the king actually has huge amounts of respect for them. Begins so much so that the king actually worships, praises their God. Interesting. Verse 29, therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble for no other God can save this way. So here's the thing. Nebuchadnezzar still doesn't have really God's heart yet. He's <laughs> like, but it's really not God's heart, right? Um, but it's interesting. It's like legal protection. Like he issues legal protection now on the Jewish people because of their God. Verse 30, then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So the guys, the astrologers that came up and tried to pull a fast one, now these guys are actually 
promoted even more. So, what is this story about exactly, right? Like, what is really happening here? Uh, first off, just to clarify, this is not a children's story. Meaning, did anybody grow up in a church with a felt board? Come on now, felt boards, right? This is a great felt board message. Because then you got the fire and the, you know, you, get, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't know what a felt board is, just Google it, okay? Uh, felt board has nothing on the iPad. This, it's way more, it's cooler. Yeah, that just sketch, right? Uh, but this is also one of those kind of, um, I remember going to youth camp, and this is one of those youth camp messages that was about bowing down to secular music. Ooh, right? It's not what this is about either. The zither, that secular zither. Um, but sadly, this is not a children's story. My theory here is we frequently tame this story. We make this story, um, we kind of make it this story about idol worship. And it kind of disconnects us from what it's actually about. Because the actual meaning of this is actually really provocative and disturbing, and it really upsets the status quo. And... This is about two topics that you're not supposed to talk about at Thanksgiving or the Super Bowl. Politics and religion. That's what this is about. And you guys are like, don't rock the boat, Ryan. We're so unified right now. But we need to talk about this. This is actually about something called nationalism. This is, this is about when politics and worship join hands. That's what this story is about. And if you're starting to freak out right now, I do not mean patriotism. Uh, when I say nationalism, here's what I mean. When we mix politics and religion, when the kingdom of God is swapped out for your political party, when Jesus has swapped out for your candidate of choice, and when Jesus' way of love, mercy, justice, and nonviolence is swapped out for anger and self-preservation. That's nationalism. And Scripture, if you're, if you're curious about Scripture, a lot of people quote Romans, what is it, 13, about the government and pray for the government, blah, blah, blah. Actually, Scripture is pretty much down on government, like all through. Like, I'm not going to go through it. We can do that some other time. But in the Old Testament, there, you know, over and over and over again, there's warnings about government. There's warnings about having a king. There's warning after warning after warning. So no candidate or political movement is remotely, on a human level, close to the kingdom of God. And the problem is, is that, you know, every party tries to kind of have this deliver a utopia, and we have this insane level of response as people about our politics. Like, there's always something, like, hopeful that somebody else can do. But simply, put simply, nationalism is idolatry of the state. The worship of the state is a pseudo-god. And it's nothing new. 
This has been going on for millennia. Uh, when you are a king, so look at Nebuchadnezzar. He's got a huge kingdom. He's got people from the north and the west and the east, all the way down to Egypt. He has all these different people groups that are worshiping different gods, right? So in different languages, different ethnicities, different economics, how do you unify, how do you get everybody in this huge geographic region with all these different beliefs to, how do you consolidate power? You institute a civil religion. That's what you do. This is nothing new for Nebuchadnezzar. This is nothing new for Nebuchadnezzar. This has been going on for a long time. Oxford professor John Lettix wrote this. He said, it is an all-too-familiar scenario. It's going to probably pop up on the screen shortly. Do you have that one? All right. It is an all-too-familiar scenario to which history repeatedly testifies. An attempt to harness religion in the interest of the totalitarian state by making the state an object of worship. Now, disagree with that because it, it doesn't have to be a totalitarian state for this to happen. I actually think in a Western uh, democracy or, in our case, a constitutional republic, it can actually be just as prevalent. We can get really excited about the fact that what we have is the best ever. And once God is out of the picture into that void, something else steps in. And nationalism, okay, is, is, is an old thing, but it's not a new thing. So Babylon, um, Nazi Germany, um, imperialism, um, uh, colonialism, all these things have been part of the, the story of human history. Now, I'm going to say two things that I think are really important for us. And right now, you're probably like, I'm going to email him. Just hang with me. It's a huge part of our culture, and it's very um, quiet. I mean, it's not quiet. It's, it's very subtle. Um, we hear about a statue in Daniel that's 60 cubits. I forget. I did the math on this. It's, it's, not that, it's not that tall. And we laugh off this statue. We're like, silly Babylonians. But what do we have in the harbor in New York? We have a statue that's three times higher. Now, I know we don't bow down and worship it. We do take selfies by it. So I'm told. I've never been there. But um, so we have that. And so you're like, come on, Ryan. And then we have this thing called a national anthem, right? And it's an interesting thing. Like, you'd be at a sporting event, say, I don't know, the Super Bowl. And the whole place will get quiet. And it'll, it'll be this moment, right? Like a really reverent moment. And then, and then sometimes the, the people mess up the words. And you're like, how can you mess up the words? It's our national anthem. You know, it's like our worship song, right? And you're like, hey, Ryan, you're, you're pushing the, you're poking the bear here. I'm just saying, it's kind of a moment, isn't it? Maybe? Okay. You guys are all quiet. And then we have this thing called the Pledge of Allegiance. And I'm not saying don't say the Pledge of Allegiance. I'm just saying it's interesting because what are the words to it? I pledge what? Allegiance. <laughs> it's interesting, right? Like, what's happening there for us? I'm not saying don't say it. I'm just saying think about what you're saying. And some of you will probably go, I don't say it. That's fine. 
And, 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 and I'm saying this all to say, what would, I'm like, think about this. What would Jesus think about that? What would Paul think about that? I mean, Jesus was an enemy of the state. That's why he gets crucified. And Paul is put to death declaring that Jesus is Lord and Caesar isn't. So we live in this really weird spot, right? And all I'm saying is we still do this. It's still, it happened and it still happens. Uh, if you're watched, um, if you're into the political scene, party conventions before a presidential election. Have you ever watched these? I mean, they're basically televised, secular, evangelistic crusades with songs and banners and speeches. and It's wild. Nationalism is a huge part of the greatest nation on earth conversation, right? Now, it's a blind spot. And the reason why I say this, the second thing I want to tell us, it's a blind spot for us in the American church. And what I mean by blind spot is not a weak spot. A weak spot, you know what your weak spot is, right? For some of you, weak spot is ice cream, you know, while watching The Biggest Loser or whatever, you know, <laughs> which is kind of brutal. But, um, you know, it's, it's, my, it's my weak spot. A blind spot is something you don't know is there. A blind spot is something, and every generation has a blind spot. Think of the, the slavery. Slavery was, for some, a blind spot. For some, it was like a glaring issue. But for some, it was a literal blind spot. Uh, England, colonialism was a blind spot. A blind spot, like I said, is not a weak spot. It is, by definition, something you cannot see. It is lethal, but you are blind to it. So I say this with all humility that this is a huge blind spot in the church. And I'm not saying for one political party or the other. I'm saying for all of us. For the left and the right, we're both just as prone, I don't care who you vote for, of having this kind of swell up in us. And our divining narrative is, as we've been talking about this the last few weeks, is that we are made in the image of God. That if you are followers of Jesus, you, are, you know that you are made in the image of God. And what is wrong with the world, and we hold this to be true, that what is wrong with the world is not the wrong political leader or, or the wrong economics or the wrong legislation or the wrong foreign policy. What we believe is wrong with the world is sin in the human heart. Period. There's a guy named Greg Boyd. And here's the thing. I will just share with you that um, just so you know, there are some writers that I quote, and it doesn't mean because I quote them that I like everything they've ever said or written ever in their life. So don't freak out because Greg Boyd has some other things that I'm not totally on board with. But he wrote a book. Don't read the quote yet if it's up there. He wrote a book a number of years ago, and 2,000 people left his church after he wrote this book. It's a really good book. I'm going to read this quote from this book. It's pretty hard, so hold on. He says, The myth of America as a Christian nation with the church as its guardian has been and continues to be damaging both to the church and to the advancement of God's kingdom. Among other things, this nationalistic myth binds us to the way in which our basic and most cherished cultural assumptions are diametrically opposed to the kingdom way of life, 
taught by Jesus and his disciples instead of living out the radically countercultural mandate of the kingdom of God. This myth has induced us to Christianize many pagan aspects of our culture instead of providing the culture with a radical alternative way of life we largely present it with a religious version of what it already has. Ouch. Right? The reality is, America, and guys, listen, I'm not bagging on America. I am so grateful. I mean, there's so many great things with this country. There's so many freedoms, all those things. I'm not bagging on America. What I'm saying is America is what the New Testament, uh, New Testament writers call the world. It's a culture built on autonomy from God, meaning great parts of American culture, but there's also very warped parts of it too. And empire and kingdom, we're going to be talking about in a few weeks, America is an empire by every definition of the world, of the word, not a kingdom. Tremper Longman is actually a commentator that I've been using here uh, for this series, and he wrote this. We need to remind ourselves that no modern nation, whether America, England, Korea, or whatever, is in a situation like Israel. America is not a Christian nation. There is no such thing as a Christian nation. America is more like Babylon in Daniel's day or Rome in Jesus' day than Israel. This is the idea behind exile. So when you read through the Old Testament and you look for parallels between nations that we live in, the nation we live in, and a nation in the Old Testament, don't think Israel under Moses or a theocracy with the Torah. Think Babylon, think Rome, think Alexander the Great, think something like that. Babylon and Rome. They all had some really great things too. I mean, archaeologists, I mean, you, we, the history of Rome, there's so many things we've gotten from Rome, Pax Romana, all the legal system, all this great stuff, Babylon, the hanging gardens, all this. I mean, America's got some great things too, but it's not the kingdom of God. It is an empire, plain and simple. And just like every empire, America has been elevated, okay, to a de facto God in our sexual, sexual secular culture. Oops. <laughs> Podcast. Um, it's been elevated to a de facto God in our culture. So what is this passage about? Because like I said, it's not a children's story. It's about how we live in the shadow of an empire like Babylon, Rome, or the United States of America as followers of Jesus when our allegiance to the king and the kingdom, okay, is, is what we're what we're called to, what we're pulled to, how do we live with that overwhelming pressure to do what everybody else is doing? How do, we, how do we see something in these three guys' refusal to worship, to bow down to this national symbol when everybody else is bowing down to it? Now, what, you're, what you, some of you are saying is like, okay, Ryan, what about, like, what, 4th of July, is that bad? I'm not saying that's bad. I love the 4th of July. Some of you in this room, you're more of the boomer generation, or I'm a Gen X, so I really don't care about anything, but um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Cultural stereotypes. Um, so boomers and, and Gen X, like, we, we have this, uh, this, this 
overwhelming just love and, and appreciation, and there's some patriotism and even some nationalism in, involved in our lives, and, and, and we've got the 4th of July. I love the 4th of July. You don't have to give people gifts, and there's things that blow up, and there's food and everything, and uh, what, we're, what we're celebrating on the 4th of July is the beginning of our country, which actually we should be celebrating on July 3rd if you know history, but anyway... But some of you like are more in the millennial crowd, and you're just like you're just not that into America. You're just like, hey man, July Fourth is great. You know why? Stranger Things three comes out. Yes. You're like more excited about that than you are of the country. I get it. Like there's a huge difference in this room, right? There's a huge difference. My point is that for you, many of you, maybe a traditional national nationalism is not the issue in your life. But odds are that there is something about the American way of life that is easy to elevate above the teachings of Jesus, right? This is that inertia piece, right? We talk about this a lot. Secularism, money, materialism, sexual freedom. I actually chose to use that word there, not secular freedom, sexual freedom, um, Radical autonomy and individualism, especially out here in the West where we have land and time and space. It's really easy to misplace our loyalty to Jesus and the King to the American way of life. It's easy. So much we can learn from these three guys. So, what is the response? Well, it's easy. Non-participation. That's it. That's what these three guys do. They just choose not to participate. And it all starts with this simple, ordinary act of just not participating. I don't know if you've heard the story of a guy named August Landmasser. And um, it's, it's during uh, Nazi Germany, uh, early 1940s. And I love this picture. We're going to show this. Do you have the picture down below? Here it is. Check this out. This is a great picture. Everybody's saluting Hitler, and he's just like, nope. <laughs> right? Just got his arms crossed. So I'm not doing it. And I love this picture. It's like one guy in a sea of just so many people, and he's just got his arms crossed. There's a story behind this, backstory. Uh, he was dating a Jewish girl. It's always a girl, right? It always gets you in trouble. It's like Star Wars. And here's my theory on Star Wars. The whole thing just sinks because Padme screwed it up for everything. Like, if she wasn't in the story, there's no problems. But I digress. He's dating a Jewish girl. They're in love He's like, sorry, Hitler, but she's cute, and you're not. They were separated. He was drafted into military service, died in combat. She was taken away to a concentration camp and put to death. But it's just like one dude. He's just like, nope. Malcolm Gladwell wrote a story wrote a book, and in it, he tells the story of Andre Trochme. I think this is the guy you were telling me about, Randy. Maybe. I don't know. We had a conversation. French Anabaptist pastor from Le Chambon, 
and he got a letter. Uh, this is when Germany's coming into uh, France. He gets a letter from the Nazi party, and the Nazi party is basically like, turn in your Jewish people. We're coming, turn in your Jewish people. And they sent an official letter back, and this is part of it. I'm going to read it to you. This is Andre Trochme. He says, We have learned of the frightening scenes which took place three weeks ago in Paris, where the French police, on orders of the occupying power, that's the Nazis, arrested in their homes all the Jewish families to hold them in the Ville de Hiv. We are afraid that the measures of deportation of the Jews will soon be applied in the southern zone. We feel obliged to tell you that there are among us a certain number of Jews. But we make no distinction between Jews and non-Jews. It is contrary to the gospel teaching. If our comrades, whose only fault is to be born in another religion, receive the order to let themselves be deported or even examined, they would disobey the order received, and we would try to hide them as best we could. We have Jews, you are not getting them. <laughs> That's some true story. Some kick-butt pacifism right there. Story behind that, uh, Trachme actually made it out of Germany alive. Estimates say that he saved 3,500 people. How? Non-participation. He's just not going to participate in that. Now, that's a very dramatic story, but most of the time, our lives aren't faced with big dramatic stories, like a fiery furnace or hiding Jewish people. Most of our lives are more ordinary and more basic and more subtle, right? And so, what does it look like to not participate? This is where we have to start asking ourselves very uh, critical questions. Let's just talk about American culture, especially the Denver culture. It's a, it's a highly, uh, you know, it's very, there's so much food and drink. And you say you're out with friends and neighbors or, or coworkers and, and you have a drink. And then the bartender comes back and says, hey, have it another. You want another? And your friends are like, hey, have another. I mean, what, what happens to us, right? What about non-participation in those moments? What about, uh, like, how we spend our money? You're going to see ad after ad after ad today, and you're going to be asking yourselves if they're funny or not. But ultimately, what those are trying to do is sell you something and, and make you want something. Pull your heart towards, you know, there's gonna, you know there's going to be an Audi commercial. Pull your heart towards a new Audi or pull your heart towards this or that, right? And then there's this, idea of like, okay, shopping and stuff and money. And then we, we don't think about the labor ethics and all these other things that go into it. And then we're going to have a, we're going to have a series of things that we're going to see today about sexuality and our view of sexuality as a culture. And the, you to what, who knows better, Jesus or Beyonce, right? About what sexuality, like true good sexuality is. See, non-participation is a quiet rebellion against the status quo. And every day, you and I are faced with a battery of decisions where we have to choose our allegiance to Jesus and the kingdom of God and to worship Jesus or worship America or the American way of life. Every day. 
And there are times when it's crystal clear. Like, I won't lie to make the sale, or I won't sleep with you, or I, I know that's legal now, but I'm not involved in that, or whatever it is. Now, here's what happens when you do that. Two things will happen when you, when you choose not to participate, okay? When you choose to, the path of non-participation, two things will happen. The first one, it will upset people. It will make people angry. See, non-participation is offensive. Why? Because non-participation carries with it a critique of the status quo, a vision of a better way of life. To say no to something makes people defensive and hostile. This, I've noticed this on the other end for me. Whenever I meet a vegetarian or a vegan, I freak out. I'm like, What? How do you do that? And then I start asking them questions. And <laughs> it's the worst. Like, if you're vegetarian and vegan in here and we've had these conversations, you're like, yeah, you are kind of a jerk. The point is, is like you not participating in my love of carniv carnivorous activities makes me feel like you're judging me. And you are. <laughs> and that's okay. But on a serious note, why, why were the Anabaptists persecuted? The Anabaptists were per persecuted because they would not fight to kill uh, for any nation. And that was a threat to the status quo. So it will, it will upset people when you choose to not participate. The second thing it will do is it will cost you. It will cost you. It may cost you a promotion. It may cost you an invite. It may cost you some things. And millions of our friends around the world uh, choose allegiance to Jesus over a lot of things and suffer way worse than that. We don't face persecution here. We might face a little social pushback and things like that, some teasing, some awkward moments. But there are times of of real resistance. Don't est underestimate the power of non-participation and the power that that can have on the people around you and our culture at large. The boys decided not to participate and it had an enormous effect on King Nebuchadnezzar. So much so that we read the beginning of King Nebuchadnezzar's letter to the world. King Nebuchadnezzar writes a letter to the people of the world. Chapter 4, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Wow. Three dudes. Nope. We're not going to do that. Do your worst. We're not going to do that. Because these three guys had the, the courage to say, no, we will not participate a letter goes out 
to the world. We'll talk more about that letter next week in House Church Sunday.